The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. This is Squawk Pod today on our podcast. Market madness, a Wall Street roller coaster knocking hundreds of billions of dollars out of valuations, breaking down the volatility. It just seemed more just a let's unspool what we just spooled up over the prior month. Even DocuSign, one of the most impressive stock stories of the pandemic, wasn't spared. The CEO of the e-signature company says he's not discouraged by a single day dip. We drive great customer success. Our economics will be fantastic, and they have been since we've been public. And equal vaccine distribution with the health policy advisor for President Obama, Dr. Zeke Emanuel. Vaccine nationalism is a natural response. Governments are responsible for the freedom and well-being of their citizens. If the whole world is suffering, your country's not going to get better. Those stories plus a free day for Googlers, a rough day for billionaires, and another Jobs Friday from the Labor Department. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. It's September 4th, 2020. I can't believe it's Labor Day. It feels like March 187th. But it's Friday and Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Mike Santoli and Brian Sullivan. Joe and Andrew are both off today. We want to get right to the markets after yesterday's huge sell-off. You had the Dow, the S&P, and the 500, and the Nasdaq all coming off their worst trading day since June 11th. Yesterday, the Dow losing more than 800 points, and on a percentage basis, it was actually the best performer of the three major indexes. It was down by just 2.8%, but if you were looking at the S&P, it was down by 3.5%, and then tech was the really big loser. NASDAQ off by 5%. That is halfway into correction territory in a single trading session. But for some high flyers, it was even worse than that. In fact, check out shares of Apple. They were down by some 8% for its worst trading day since March 20th. In that decline, it lost nearly $180 billion in market cap. And according to Dow Jones market data, that is the largest one-day loss for a U.S. listed company on record. Now, if that isn't enough to get your attention, Mm. think about this. Apple lost more in market cap yesterday than the individual market capitalizations of 470 of the companies in the S&P 500. Unfortunately, it wasn't just Apple. Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, and even Tesla all saw their market cap sink by tens and even hundreds of billions of dollars during yesterday's trading session. Look at that. Microsoft down by $115 billion. Amazon off by $93 billion. The stay-at-home stocks like Apple and Salesforce, they are the momentum names that led the market higher and the ones that retail investors latched onto. Yesterday, they all got slammed. Dom Chu is here. He's got a closer look at yesterday's sell-off and just where the damage was most direct. Dom, good morning. Good morning, Becky. Slammed and damaged, maybe putting it mildly, given the action that we saw yesterday. And what we're going to do is show you some of those stay-at-home and work-at-home names and the big falls that they had in the context of a year-to-date chart, because it'll explain why, in many cases, the stocks that really lead to the upside are the ones that fall the hardest when things do turn. So, Zoom Video, DocuSign, and Salesforce, three of the names that we've closely associated with surging stocks tied to the kind of work-from-home trade. Massive moves here lower for all of these, but in context, Zoom Video is still up just in 2020, 440%, DocuSign 202%, 
and Salesforce 62%. Salesforce, of course, the biggest out of all of them. That's the work-from-home trade. On the stay-at-home side of things, those names as well, some of the mega-cap technology comm services stocks, we're talking about names like Apple, Amazon, and Netflix. They've all seen, you can see there, that move lower just in yesterday's trade, shedding billions, perhaps even hundreds of billions if you put them all together. Apple, though, still up 62% year-to-date, Amazon up 81%, and Netflix up 61%. That trade particularly is playing out as well. Now, watch this, because these three sectors were the ones that got hit the hardest. We are talking about technology, communication services, and consumer discretionary. Why are these important? Because these three are by far the best performing sectors in the S&P 500 so far in 2020, leading on the way up and then again on the way down in yesterday's trade. And one more thing to keep an eye on, Mike. I know that you've been watching this. The momentum stocks. I'll send things back yeah, over to you. A little bit of a, of a sharp recoil, uh, Dom, in the last uh, couple of days. We'll, uh, we'll watch it today. Guys, we had a good discussion yesterday about that so-called gamma squeeze and the options trade and what might happen if it flipped. Well, apparently it did flip. A few things. I know Mike has got something to chime in here as well. But talking to people all day yesterday, here's sort of the list. If you want to know what happened, like what changed from Wednesday to Thursday. Well, number one, it was the Nasdaq's largest drop from its all-time high ever, that from Bespoke Investment Group. Pretty interesting there, guys. Now we talked about it. What flip? Well, apparently the algos flipped. You don't go from up 400 to down 800, and that kind of flip on the NASDAQ because of Robinhood traders. That's going to be high-speed trading in algos. Tech simply too hot. Valuations maybe didn't matter until they do. Mike's talked about that. Well, apparently valuations at some point yesterday may have mattered because many of the highest valuation stocks, the work-from-home trade, you look at the DocuSign, CEO's on later, Zoom, they fell 9 and 10%. And this idea, guys, of a vaccine counter trade, in other words, the closer we get to a vaccine, the more likely it is the market might sell off because you buy it. You know, we always talk about, you know, buy the rumor, sell the news. That would be the ultimate news, Mike. And maybe there's this idea that you, you buy ahead of it. And then when it comes out, then the real sort of work begins. But those are a few things that Traders that I talked to, I'd be interested to hear what you had yeah. to, to hear about yesterday. Actually, the well. analogy there might be the 2017 tax cut bill where the market incrementally priced in the good news multiple times over the course of an entire year. We finally got it December 2017. People thought it was an all clear symbol. One more month of vertical gains in the market. It was the original uh, kind of melt up of that phase. And then you did actually fall pretty swiftly from an all time high, not in a single day. But you had basically a 10 percent correction in no time. There was a, another kind of volatility storm uh, that came out of nowhere then. Now, all that being said, what you really describe, what we're all describing here is the most crowded and overheated parts of the market that were going up for about three or four weeks on not much more than just pure momentum and crowd psychology were the ones that sold off the most yesterday. Um, and in the process, you didn't really disturb much about the underlying trend. If you look at the S&P, it didn't really break through. You know, it wasn't as severe um, a pullback even as we got back in June from peak to trough. So I think what we're seeing here is a little bit of a test of, uh, of resolve of this market where everyone had there was a sort of a flush of hot money out of the areas of the market that did too well. And uh, and I think that at this point, you didn't see a lot of stress in the credit markets. The breadth of the market wasn't awful, given how bad the indexes were. So, again, really a reversal of what we've been seeing before. And the S&P 500 back to where it was early last week. Same thing uh, with the Nasdaq 100. So um, you could point to a few more fundamental or at least news-driven catalysts. It just seemed more just a, a kind of let's unspool what we just spooled up over the prior month. 
Yeah, it, well, it well, felt the like it was the laws the of physics it, being applied ahead. to... Well, just it felt like the laws of physics being applied to this, right? What yeah. goes up must come down, and it felt like it happened pretty quickly. Well, if you're playing the technicals, and let's hope maybe that the markets are not, because I don't want to scare anybody, but if you're looking at just sort of the, the moving average levels, for the NASDAQ to hit its 50-day moving average, it would have to fall another 600 points. And if the NASDAQ were to go back and touch that 200-day ah. moving average, that's a 2,000-point drop from here. The NASDAQ's 200-day moving average is roughly 9,500, Mike. So that goes into that momentum you talked about, maybe how far away we got from any sort of semblance of you know, range-bound trading, if you will. Not saying we're going back to the 50 or 200-day, but if you're looking for some kind of pullback to maybe test those levels, yeah. we have got a long way to go still to make that test. Just in terms, guys, of, of how quickly things can change, we've been monitoring the, the wealth of some of the wealthiest people in the world over the last several weeks and months, of course, as these stocks have gone up so quickly. I think if you take a look at it, just from Monday, Elon Musk has lost $19 billion. Um, last week, he went up and, and moved into third place, I believe it was. By Monday, he was the third richest person in the world. Everyone lost money. Bezos, Zuckerberg, everybody who's got a lot of money in any of those big stocks, those high flyers, did come back down a little bit. This is going to be interesting when you start thinking about proposals like Bernie Sanders has put out there, saying that billionaires should be paying uh, taxes based on paper gains that they've made. When you see a quick reversal like this, you understand how, how that could be pretty complicated. Yeah, it's not a loss. It's well, just an adjustment on your. I just did the math on your very quickly, Mike. I did the math on Becky's numbers there. So at an average price of let's call it fifty thousand for the Model Three to the Model S, Elon Musk lost one hundred and eighty thousand Teslas yesterday. Yeah. Right. So it's a, it's an on paper <laughs> adjustment of let's be honest, really an abstract number because it can change uh, at any at any moment. And uh, but that's you know. why taxing those numbers are so complicated, sure. right? Like if you're going to pay a tax based yeah, on a given point on where stock stands. Yeah, talking so much about because it seems practically so. I mean, look, somebody appraises the value of your house. You pay taxes on the appraised value. You might not think that's the correct appraised value, uh, but this is a little faster My house doesn't go though. up or down by 5 or 8 or 10% a day. Right. No, exactly. The hallmark of this market, Mike and Becky, for the last couple of years has been incredibly wild swings in a short period of time. I'm talking about you know 10 and 15% corrections in a matter of a couple weeks or months, stuff that yeah. used to take half a year well, let me, to a year let is me now happening that. before our eyes. Let me modify that because what happens is unusually calm trending moves that last for a long time and are much more persistent than you think they're going to be punctuated by those outside short, sharp, sudden moves. So there's a different rhythm to this market, but we marvel for long periods of time, whether it's the fourth quarter of last year, whether it was all of 2017, whether it was all of 2013, is this market just all it does is grind higher and rotate and stay in this trend. And then something breaks and it gets to some kind of extreme. And so the rhythms are different and the mechanisms and the velocity are different. But the market was always every single day overshooting, you know, what the implications of that day's news was, because it's basically, you know, crowd psychology with money. I mean, that's kind of what this is. Yeah, Mike, you said it best yesterday. You said that this stuff works until it doesn't. And yesterday was the day that it didn't all right. of a sudden. And, and a, hard to say if it was to anyone's harm, I mean, in the very long term. Um, I do think it's probably better for a lot of that activity to be checked like this and kind of bleed away a little bit of the overconfidence in this way over time, as opposed to let it build up, you know, to even greater extremes. 
The U.S. economy created 1.7 million jobs in August, sending the unemployment rate down to 8.4 percent. That's the lowest unemployment rate since the coronavirus pandemic forced an economic shutdown, putting many Americans out of work. Government hiring helped last month with a growth of 344,000 workers, most of them on the U.S. Census. The total of those on furlough also fell dramatically by the millions. But the other side of the number is still stark. More than 24 million people said they are not working because their employer closed or lost business due to the pandemic. Still, this report represents positive progress. We have seen some rebounds from retail sales, real estate, and manufacturing all off their coronavirus lows. But many economists worry that we're still in this. Without another round of economic stimulus from the government, these gains could be short-lived. Here's Jason Furman, former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. All that um, being said, a rational person would look at this report and say stimulus was working, we still have a problem, we need more of it, we can compromise. Not sure that everyone in Washington is rational. Well, if you are a Google employee, hopefully you get to sleep in this morning. Hopefully you're sleeping right now. But the company made today a one-time paid holiday for, quote, collective well-being in light of COVID-19. It applies to full-time employees and interns. That's right, Becky and Mike, the coveted four-day weekend. A company memo viewed by CNBC said that workers who had to work today for business reasons, critical needs, etc., could take the next available working day off. So they could take Tuesday off, I guess, as well. I can't believe it's Labor Day. It feels like March 187th today, but still good for Google, the four-day weekend. Sounds pretty nice. You know, I was thinking about that. What, what happens if you already had the day off today? You get, a, you get the day back? It's a good experiment, too. Everyone yeah, should just search point. obscure things just to make sure the algorithm still works because nobody at Google is, is there now. <laughs> right. What happens yeah. if nobody you shows up I'm for gonna, the day? Can you still go on? Yeah, I'm going to bing that and see if I can get the answer. Coming up on Squawk Pod, e-signature platform DocuSign has seen its business explode during the pandemic. But CEO Dan Springer is looking ahead. What I actually think is interesting is what's going to happen post-pandemic. I think a lot of people are going to yeah. see this is just a better way to do things. So we don't think people are going to be going back to paper once we're back to, you know, a new normal. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. All right, good Friday morning and welcome or welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I am Brian Sullivan along with Becky Quick and Mike Santoli. I believe Joe and Andrew should be back next week, Tuesday, of course. Monday, we have a Labor Day holiday. DocuSign shares have been volatile in extended trading. Second quarter results beat analyst estimates, and the company provided upbeat guidance as it looks to expand beyond e-signatures into other areas of contract management. Stock was part of yesterday's sell-off in the stay-at-home stocks, though, falling 8.7% in the regular session. DocuSign uh, CEO Dan Springer will join us in a first on CNBC interview in just a bit. You know, I just wonder, is the market not paying to attention to fundamentals now, or was it not paying attention to fundamentals three days ago? You know, it's, it's kind of that question of, 
Yeah, these companies are doing well. They are doing much better than so many of the stocks who have gotten hit by COVID. But where is the point where it's based on fundamentals and where is the point that it's based on momentum and being the best place to put your money? I mean, that's the, the big question. Well, I think the one way you well, can come down depend- on that is say it neither you know, neither in the two weeks before this or yesterday was fundamentals the main thing uh, driving it. It was the perception of very long-term opportunity and a momentum chase, arguably. That's uh, maybe now spilling Yeah, and it back. also comes down to what you're willing to pay for it, yeah. Becky, right? What you're willing to pay for those fundamentals. If you're willing to pay 60 times earnings, you darn well better hope they come in great. Joining us right now is Dan Springer. He is DocuSign CEO. And Dan, it's great to see you today. Thanks for having me. You know, it has to be a little weird to see your stock down more than 8% yesterday, down 8% this morning in the pre-market when you just put out a quarter that basically blew the doors off. It was a very strong quarter. I didn't see any weakness. You raised your guidance for the full year. Are you kind of scratching your head over some of these moves this morning? I mean, if I were uh, going to be scratching my head every time I was confused by the stock market, it would be uh, a scratchy head, I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we, we really try to focus on what we can control, which is delivering great customer success, uh, putting up the great financial numbers you talked about, and making sure we're building the best place for our employees to work. And I have a feeling in the long run, the uh, stock market will take care of itself for us. Yeah, it's been a bit of a wild ride. If you're looking back at how much the stock is up, it was up more than 227%, I think, before yesterday's decline. What was it like riding it on the upside? I, I mean, again, we try to keep the focus for the upside and the downside with all of our employees to be kind of as, as level heel as we can be. And, and I think we've, we've seen the phenomenon that people get excited uh, you know, about the success we've had and how the market sort of reflects that success. But again, if we keep people thinking about the stock market, that's something we can't control very much. So uh, we smile when uh, we see those kind of successes with the stock, and it does feel good. But uh, our big focus is trying to get uh, everyone to be focused on customer success, because we know if we drive great customer success, our economics will be fantastic. And they have been uh, since we've been public. All right. Let's talk about the numbers uh, that you, you put out yesterday. In terms of the revenue, it was better than the street anticipated, but it was up by a little less than 10 percent above the estimates. In terms of the earnings per share, that was a blowout number. It was 17 cents a share versus the eight cents the street was expecting. So that's more than double the expectations. That tells me that the margins were much better than uh, the street had been anticipating. What happened? Well, as we scale the business, uh, you know, we are continuing to focus on growth. And this is a growth company, and we will absolutely shoot for that apex of the growth opportunity that we see. Uh, but with that scale does come some productivity and some efficiency opportunity. And in our long-term model, we'll be tracked this sort of 20 25% operating margin. We are feeling we're right on track. We're slightly ahead of plan for there. We're right on track with that. So it wasn't a big surprise to me to see that extra growth uh, drop uh, to the bottom line, as you just articulated. Let's try and dig down a little deeper on that, because I think that's really interesting. And by the way, for people who don't know what DocuSign does, um, it's e-signatures. It's it's a way of signing things in a paperless society. And obviously, that's way more important in times of COVID era when you don't have documents going back and forth. And often you don't have people face to face with each other. Where, where have been some of your big growth areas? Um, what, what are you talking about when you talk about companies or, or clients that are extending where and how they're using uh, DocuSign? Yeah, I think there's a couple different ways to think about uh, that advantage growth we have received. And while we, like all businesses, um, see negativity to the pandemic, of course, and we're particularly concerned with our small business customers, where we've seen that upside growth is a lot of companies that are trying to drive a digital transformation anyway. And then with uh, the pandemic, they needed to get certain of their uh, workflows online uh, desperately. And over the last couple of quarters, we've seen that dramatic growth. 
Uh, you talked about uh, the revenue growth. We look at the billings as another indicator of that. 59% last quarter, 61% growth this quarter. Um, clearly, our business was doing very well, but the pandemic has increased that. Where we've seen it from a vertical standpoint is financial services. Uh, we've seen it in healthcare, life sciences. We've actually seen it increasingly in government, uh, both federal as well as state and local. And those uh, industries have uh, even accelerated more than previously for us uh, with this need to be in a work from home setting that you described. Yeah, I, I've seen it even with some of our doctor's appointments, having to sign off on yeah. things because if you're doing you know, telemedicine, if you're, if you're not in person in the office, you have to sign off on a bunch of stuff ahead of time. Yeah, telemedicine is a great example of that. Uh, and what's interesting to me is that when you think about something like telemedicine, a lot of people are saying, I need to do that today because I just, for health reasons, cannot be in the doctor's office. And it's more dangerous, some people feel right now, to go into a doctor or a hospital because of their concerns about you know, COVID-19. But what I actually think is interesting is what's gonna happen post-pandemic. And I think a lot of people are gonna yeah. see this is a better way to do things. So if you're in a, a you know, med medical situation, someone might say, if I can have this positive experience with my physician without having to spend the time and the effort to go into the office, that's gonna make busy people a lot better off. We see it also on the commercial side where people are saying, I used to literally have to fax contracts to people or FedEx them to people in order to get my sales contract signed. Isn't this a much better process, much faster, much lower cost, and a better end consumer experience? So we don't think people are going to be going back to paper and manual processes uh, once we're back to you know, a new normal. Yeah, I agree with you. It is a better way to do it. I think about the issues like signing for a mortgage or something, all the ways that you could simplify that, not have to be in person, not have to be sending stuff back and forth. Anyway, Dan, um, congratulations uh, on the numbers. Uh, sorry to see the sell-off in the stock, but again, I think you're getting lumped in with everybody um, that has seen their stocks run up so rapidly because of the work from home. But I want to thank you for your time today. Thank you for having us. Next on Squawk Pod, getting a COVID vaccine around the world. President Obama's health advisor says global leaders and care providers should work together. An emergency room doctor doesn't go to everyone waiting and say, all right, I'm giving everyone five minutes equally. No, they look at who's got the heart attack. That conversation with Dr. Zeke Emanuel, right after this. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick. Let's give you an update on two vaccine trials. First up, Johnson & Johnson saying that its COVID vaccine candidate prevented severe disease in hamsters. It produced neutralizing antibodies, and the hamsters didn't experience severe illness like pneumonia. Someone tweeting yesterday, great news for hamsters everywhere. Also, Pfizer's CEO confirming that the company could have results from its late-stage vaccine trial as early as October. 
as the race for a COVID-19 vaccine heats up, our next guest is proposing a model for global distribution of those vaccines. Let's welcome Dr. Zeke Emanuel. He is former White House health policy advisor under President Obama. He's also vice provost of global initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Emanuel's plan is detailed in a new piece for Science Magazine. And Dr. Emanuel, thanks for being here today. Great to be with you. Before we jump into the specifics on your plan, I'd, I'd like to ask you just a broader question about where you think we are in that race for a vaccine. Um, we had Dr. Scott Gottlieb with us, the former head of the FDA. Both he and Anthony Fauci have, have suggested that they think we could see some sort of early vaccines being brought out to the American public. I think it is possible that we will have data in the sort of October, November timeframe. I would, I would be pegging it on the November timeframe. That assumes that these, these vaccines are successful. The two lead candidates right now are the Pfizer product. I'm on the board of Pfizer and the Moderna product. If those vaccines work, and there's a lot of encouraging data which suggests that they could, and I think we're all hopeful that they will, I think you could get a readout in November. It's possible you'll get a readout in late October, but everything has to go right in order for that to happen. We heard from the WHO this morning that they don't think vaccines will be broadly available until the middle of 2021. Now, I realize there's some nuance there about when something is approved and when something is broadly available. But where do you kind of come down on when we should expect to get approval for vaccines and, and, and what that might mean in terms of when we actually see them? Well, I'm a little confused. Maybe uh, Scott Gottlieb has information because he's on the board of Pfizer. But uh, these are double blind mm -hmm. studies and it's hard to know uh, how many, uh, where we are in the study, because only a few privileged statisticians in the uh, data safety monitoring board are supposed to know. Um, Francis Collins said he thought it was extremely unlikely to have something before the end of October. I'm of that view. Um, you have to be sure, you have to look at the number of conversions uh, to COVID, um, and then you have to see which groups they fall into, the placebo, or the COVID vaccine and see whether it's statistically no, it, significant. That's, so that's I think consistent go, with what Dr. Gottlieb told us. And it, it's not yeah, just based I, on his would, information as a Pfizer board member. He, he, he did verify, he, he said he's a Pfizer board member, but he said that based on some of these studies, it would depend on how things went in a lot of ways, but you could see something by the end of October, early November, just like the other gentleman you just quoted. Well, it does, it does depend upon the number of exposures and the number of conversions, and that's a, as you, yes. as you might think, a random event. Um, I would say one of the worrisome things I actually think from a public health standpoint is we're doing these studies in the United States. That means we have enough cases, uh, enough spread to do the studies. You can't do these studies in Germany or Norway or many other countries in Europe because they don't have enough cases. Um, so that's a worrisome indication about the United States, that we still have so many cases, yeah. we can actually try to do this study. In terms of how you think this needs to be distributed, that, that's going to be a huge issue. Um, obviously, every nation is going to want to protect their, their citizens. Um, but we have already seen governments trying to lock up supplies for drugs or vaccines that are going to be manufactured in their, uh, in their confines. What, what do you think about what is likely to happen, but what you think should happen? Look, um, vaccine nationalism, it's called. Keeping the vaccine for my country uh, is a natural response. Governments are responsible for the freedom and well-being of their citizens. But there's a limit to what they should do. And there's also some obligation to the world. If the whole world is suffering, your country's not going to get better, uh, as New Zealand has shown us, if everyone else has a lot of COVID. It'll come back into your country. So we have 
obligations beyond our borders, too. So what we have proposed is that we actually, you know, countries can uh, have enough vaccine to uh, get the transmission rate in their country down, but then they really do have an obligation to release uh, vaccine into the world. And then the question is how you distribute it. Remember, um, vaccine manufacturers like AstraZeneca, Eli Lilly, they have said that they think there should be fair and equitable and broad distribution of a vaccine among countries. Uh, the WHO has created this COVAX facility to buy vaccine and distribute it, and they say it should be a fair distribution. And then leaders of many countries, like Justin Trudeau of Canada, have said that there should be a fair and equitable distribution. What we've said is, how, what does fair and equitable mean in this context? Well, one of the things it means is you should mm -hmm. distribute it based upon how severe the illness is in the country and how much death and premature death it's causing. Um, I like to make the analogy, you don't an emergency room doctor doesn't go to everyone waiting and say, all right, I'm giving everyone five minutes equally. No, they look at who's having the most severe health problems, who's got the heart attack, and they focus the attention there. And that should be the same approach with a vaccine. Where can the vaccine do the most in terms of saving lives initially? And then once you've saved a lot of lives and you've reduced the mortality rate, where can it do the most to reduce the economic adverse economic impacts of COVID. Those are the two primary considerations in distributing a vaccine among countries. Where, where are the countries that are having the worst impact on both those counts? Well, they're not New Zealand and Taiwan that have done a remarkably good job. There are places now like the United States, uh, Brazil, uh, you've got a lot of Latin America, which has uh, a real rapid and high spread. Um, but as you know, uh, this has moved around, and predicting where the next hotspot is could be uh, a little dangerous. Um, it was initially uh, Italy, uh, but then it moved to the United States and to other countries. So we have to keep monitoring this and being focused. If it were today, it would probably be the United States, Brazil, Mexico, lots of Latin America, Latin American countries. India would also be high up on that list. But as I mentioned, you know, places like Taiwan, uh, Italy, France uh, wouldn't be high on the list. India would be high, as I, uh, as I mentioned, because they don't seem to have their arms around the problem. We're not working with the, with the WHO right now. Who, who would be responsible for coming up with some sort of a guideline to lay out how you determine where, where the vaccines go? Well, that's a very interesting point. There's no global government and there's no focus uh, the best approximation we have is the WHO and this new arrangement they have called the COVAX facility uh, with other organizations, Gavi and CEPI. Um, we did say that we're not going to participate in that COVAX facility. I think that's short-sighted. Uh, the United States traditionally has been a leader and a leader in the world in terms of showing the right course, showing what's fair and equitable. Um, but President Trump doesn't seem to think that participating with other countries, uh, being collaborative, is the right mode. Uh, as you know, he's talked about pulling out of NATO and pulling out of lots of arrangements with other countries. Uh, that is not a sign of leadership. Um, and I think that is not the way for the United States to uh, demonstrate that it's really a world power. And not only a world power, but a moral world power that leads by doing the right thing and setting an example for other countries. Uh, plus, he assumes that somehow the United States is going to have the vaccine. 
Maybe we're not the country that gets a vaccine. Maybe it's France or Russia uh, or Germany or Britain. And then we might be out of the running if we don't have arrangements. Dr. Emanuel, good to see you. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. That's Squawk Pod for today and for the week and for the summer. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And all three will be back in on Tuesday. That's Tuesday, September 8th. We'll be observing the Labor Day holiday on Monday, so you won't get a new episode of Squawk Pod in your feed until Tuesday. What? You don't have Squawk Pod in your feed? Please subscribe. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google, CNBC.com, wherever you listen. Have a great long weekend. Take a break. We'll meet you back here on Tuesday. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.